these movies do not pass the Bechtel test. Welcome back to Random Fandom, everyone. I'm Britt Kelly, your pansexual, non-binary, gentle being who this week is freaking out about what I'm going to wear to San Francisco Pride next month. <laughs> it just, it's a big decision. It's just sitting on my mind. Like, how will, how will I look queer as in fuck you, but also like the hottest boy so that's what I'm working on right now. And my lovely co-host, Stephanie, is here. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Lately, I've been dressing like it's the 80s. Like the 1980s or yeah. the weather? <laughs> well, yeah, no. I wish I was dressing like it was the 1880s because Vic- Victorian period men's fashion is so hot to me, but... Um, yeah it is also too hot for Oklahoma in May so instead I just I I found my oversized men's blazer in my closet as I've been packing and it was like you know what I'm gonna wear this fucker so the for those of you listeners who are hearing some um, chuckling in the background we don't have a weird interloper or maybe actually yes well it's our polite greeting welcome interloper Today we have a lovely guest, my partner, whom I have mentioned before, Dr. Matthew Hassenjaeger. If you could introduce yourself to our listeners, that would be great. Hello, and I'm just uh, sitting here thinking I really am dropping the ball in terms of men's fashion. I feel like you both have a far more extensive wardrobe in that area, and I really, <laughs> I really should take more advantage of this. <laughs> Come on, Matt. Now you have like at least five button downs of different colors. I know. Whoa, I different know. colors. <laughs> Matt, we we I, we said welcome to the show, but then you talked about men's fashion and got us off topic. Please introduce <laughs> yourself more officially to the show. What, who are you, and and what do you do? I am a scientist by day. I study animal behavior and how fish and bees and all kinds of weird creatures communicate with one another, but. I, I suppose I've not really been in, uh, invited onto the show today to talk about animals, instead to talk about <laughs> one of my other great loves, which is fantasy fiction and, and more generally The Lord of the Rings, which is, is very near and dear to my heart and in all the other aspects of the legendarium that have been coming out over the years. Oh. So I'm really excited to get to to chat with you both about that today. <laughs> yeah, you're finally going to shut up about animal social networks. No, I'm just kidding. And today you're going to talk about your other passion, the Lord of the Rings. Stephanie, Hobbit do you social have a- networks. Hobbit social yeah. networks. That's actually, that's also and my passion. <laughs> I'm very confident that out there, someone, some intrepid fan has plotted out the actual social networks and looked at who all links with who and and, and whatnot and oh I was yeah. I was thinking more like myshire.com or <laughs> uh, uh, Facebook yeah um, oh I like that yeah nice yeah well dear fan who has made those things please write to us somewhere Maybe we should get an email address. Yeah, we'll do. We'll work on that. We'll um, figure it out. With 
with yeah. with the assumption that eventually we will have actual listeners. We'll have an email address. All right. Yeah. So Stephanie, Stephanie. Oh my God. <laughs> it is how I do things. Uh, I do things in a in a Stephanie fashion. <laughs> Stephanie, do you have a tagline for us? Random fandom, the show where at least 50% of us have no idea what we're talking about in any given episode. Excellent. That's so true. <laughs> it's really the perfect recipe for an excellent podcast yep. to have at least 50% of people who don't know what they're talking about. That's right. <laughs> we're talking about our favorite philologist and medievalist, our expert in Old Norse literature and language. We're talking about John Ronald Ruel Tolkien. Wait, how is that Ruel spelled? It is it's... spelled R-E-U-E-L. So oh, oh, yeah. <laughs> we, as Americans, we don't know. I said I wasn't going to do this, but we will. And we will actually say now that he was born on January 3rd, 1892 in Bloemfontein, South Africa, but spent most of his childhood in the UK. So we're talking about him and we're talking most specifically about his, as Matt mentioned earlier, his legendarium, including classics such as The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, and The Silmarillion. That's what we're going to be talking about today. And I think we'll start with our personal histories with The Lord of the Rings. I think that's a great place for us to start. Stephanie, if you could start us off with what is your yeah. personal relationship with this fandom? So my dad got me a copy of The Hobbit when I was probably about, I'm going to guess I was probably about 12, which feels like a really good like Hobbit time, right? And I, I really liked The Hobbit. I remember reading it really, really fast. And I got the Lord of the Rings trilogy after that, as mm -hmm. most people do. And like devoured the first book, trekked my way through the second. And by the <laughs> time I got to the third, a, a significant amount of time had passed at this point. I think I was probably like 16 or so when I was like reading the last book. Right. And I, I'm not really sure if it was a case of like, I was depressed and the book was also super depressing, but man, I just felt like it was such a downer and I really mm. struggled. And I don't think that's the book's fault necessarily. I just had a really hard time finishing. Right. I actually in college almost took a class on Tolkien and I got the reading list the summer before and I was reading the Silmarillion and I think I got about a third of the way through and was like, nope, I can't. <laughs> I can't remember anybody's names. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> I am taking as many notes as there are words in the book. I think I need to cut this class. Yeah. Um, I'm impressed that you got a third of the way through the Silmarillion. Yeah. I tried. A slog. <laughs> it is. It's a weird beast of a, a book. It's it's not even really a book. It's it's a strange it's one. <laughs> it felt a lot like reading the Bible. That, that, whole, like, that whole begat, begat, Yeah, there's begat just like things. lists of names and places and you have a hard time contextualizing any of it. People change names. Their names change sometimes too. Yeah. Such and such who was called such and such. And, then... and if you were expecting it to take place like in the same regions of Middle Earth that you explore in The Lord of the Rings, they don't. So you, mm -hmm. you look at the map in the front of the book and you're completely lost already. It's not the, the place you're familiar with. 
in fact, that's like way off the map to the east. You can just barely see an edge of it. And I was really sad that I didn't get into it more than I did. Like there's so much about it that was like, I was really big into fantasy literature. I loved the like the language building elements Mm -hmm. of it, but it just didn't hold me. I have to say, I think my, my history is relatively similar with this. My dad was a super fan of Lord of the Rings, but in the super fandom of the time, which was like, he had read them very closely, studied studied them in a way that like he was familiar with the canon. He was familiar with the the history and and the relationships of of different languages and all that stuff. But he, you know, I mean, he wasn't making anything in relation to that. He was so excited when the movies came out in the early 2000s. We obviously saw all three of those. And he had copies of the hobbit and the lord of the rings in the house and he had mentioned how much he loved the hobbit when i was a kid so i remember being about maybe nine picking up the hobbit and starting to read it and getting i think no i read through the mountains so just after they're they're getting out of the mountains but before they have their exciting fight chase scene with the wargs and are taken away by the eagles i stopped there because i was like i'm done and i think a lot of it even in high school, like I tried to read the Lord of the Rings. I made, I read the first book and then I tried to read the two towers and I was like, I, I powered through it, but I was just like, this is awful. So I actually ha- have not read the entirety of any of these books until like the past five years when I finally sat down and read them, including the Silmarillion, which is interesting because I did have a period of time where I was really, really interested and I was taking classes in old English and like learning how to translate and like looking at things like the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle and Beowulf and texts that definitely had a huge influence on Tolkien as a medievalist. But they, for me, now I can read The Hobbit and enjoy it, but I will say like Tolkien is not the writer for me. I feel like they're... They remind me a lot of the epic tales, which is what he's playing with, and of things like the Silmarillion reads very similarly to certain aspects of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and that's on purpose, but it is boring. It, <laughs> these things were just like, we're going to write down the things that we know or stories we've told, but in general, you're not supposed to just be sitting down to read it. Like If, if any of these things are to, meant to be enjoyed, they're s- spoken aloud, and so <laughs> I think I just never could get that interested in the written material for me I was much more interested in the movies and uh, everyone's period that happened to everyone in high school where they became a Legolas stan yeah uh, that, that was that was me Legolasophilia yeah <laughs> everyone yeah, has so... their their period of Legolasophilia absolutely <laughs> Yeah, so that's my relationship with it, which I mean, I think my father would have been so happy if I had become equally obsessed with the Lord of the Rings. But in so many things, I disappointed my father in that area too. My poor dad, I, I didn't I didn't get into Lord of the Rings. I didn't end up liking running. I hate math, which is such a disappointment. <laughs> I didn't oh, play well. basketball. So that was Yeah, me neither. That yeah. was a disappointment to my mother though, not my father. Oh, so well. there we go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Matt, you're you're our intrepid and local expert. <laughs> talk talk <laughs> us through your relationship with yeah. the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, so I think it starts out very similar to to what 
both of you have have said for yourselves and that at the time I don't know if anyone else does this I have like no conception of of how old 12 years old is I was in fifth grade I don't know how old I was I would have to I'd have to do the math but that's very likely you were because you're a January birthday you started fifth grade at 10 and you ended fifth grade at 11 so you turned 11 yeah, so of the year roughly about that that same kind of time frame so I I had I had been like discovering this kind of like passion for like speculative fiction so like I was devouring like as many of like the expanded Star Wars universe mm-hmm. novels as I could and I was just getting into Red Wall and you know I read the the never-ending story so my mom wanted reader that my mom was wanted to encourage this and my mom had never read the Lord of the Rings I don't think she has still read the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit it's not really her cup of tea but she went and tried to find out like what were kind of like the big voices in in fantasy and so she bought me this box set and I'm gonna see if I can do this because I, I find these covers just very amusing to me one of the things that I've appreciated over the years is the amazing artwork oh. that many artists have done for Lord of the Rings related stuff. That's that's my is copy that, of The that's... Hobbit right there. <laughs> and instead of using any of the amazing artwork or commissioning new amazing artwork, I had these books with just the some of some of just like can the we, worst. Can we? Oh my god! Can worst we linger a little artwork. bit on the on the? image of the hobbit can you go back to that oh yeah it's like interesting because i do feel like in some ways this cover is very true to the character of bilbo baggins he is not the young dashing figure he is not like a naive farm boy he is like a middle-aged english gentleman who all of a sudden has some stranger show up in his door and toss him into this adventure and so, like, you look at this cover, this does not look like a hero. And, and it just, it makes me laugh because I think as a kid, I didn't know anything about The Hobbit. I don't think I would have picked this book out on my own thinking like, yeah, this looks like something I want to read. I just now realized that the creepy figure behind him is supposed to be Schmeagol. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, I think I always thought that it was just like some random swamp ghoul and like, yeah, not a random swamp ghoul. I do love the images on the Lord of the Rings books too, though. Like it's just some dudes with like long hair. Can you go back to those actually? Yeah. 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 It's just like, <laughs> I mean, also, they're all recognizable. Frodo, Frodo's like, looks like a child in the background behind Gandalf. Like these are just outstanding. Like, I don't even know. They're also all like all the images are as if they were frescoes painted between two columns for some reason. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, you get a nice Lord of the Ring triptych. Yeah. yeah, I my my copies of the Lord of the Ring trilogy, I think, were like the next round of publication where they had these kind of like sweeping landscapes, mm. and they were done in these like muted greens and purples, so they didn't match my Hobbit. And now I'm kind of sad about that. I, I I was like, yeah, I like these copies of Lord of the Rings, but now seeing these, I feel like I missed out. I don't think you have I, these copies anymore, do you, I was, I was about to say, I think they have been lost to the mists of time. I have a, a, a newer version with artwork that I do feel like generally is more aesthetically pleasing, but there is something delightfully <laughs> of its time of these old fantasy I really feel like The Two Towers is supposed to be a romance novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the name I still d- fits, right? Like, 
<laughs> to, to be fair, Legolas and Gimli is some of the closest we get to romance. I also universe. just find like the the I just assumed that was supposed to be Aragorn. And just there's something about the haircut. Like it's a very 80s, it's not really a mullet, but it's a guy with sort of about shoulder length hair with like a shorter fringe up at the top, like not just bangs, but like a fringe that's parted down the <laughs> middle. The idea that this is supposed to be Legolas, <laughs> yep. it's just baffling to me. It's it's hard to square it with with Orlando Bloom for for better or worse. That's you know. I think my Legolasophilia has been cured. <laughs> yeah, that's what Legolas looked like. I mean, wow, <laughs> it's not a good haircut. Yeah, so I was fifth grade. I my I, I my mom bought me this box set, The Hobbit. I kind of instantly fell in love with. It's just. I'm a sucker for that kind of like um, conversational narrative tone. It's really a book that seems like as you're reading it, it's a book that's like designed to be read aloud to someone, which does make sense because I think originally Tolkien had wrote it essentially as a children's story for his children that nevertheless drew on some of these like earlier myths and legends he had been creating for himself as far back as like the 19, 1917 or something around that time. And I moved on to Lord of the Rings and found it much more challenging, much less engaging. I did finish them, but I didn't really think much of them at the time. And to be honest, I don't think I, I hadn't, I didn't really return to them till the movie started coming out. And I thought like, oh yeah, I should go back and read those. And and I will say it was, it was much easier reading them in high school. Just a few years later, it's just, it, it flowed a lot better. I got more out of it. And I think I, I, I do not disagree with any of the criticism that he's got some weird, archaic, stilted language. I get why many people bounce off of these books, that it's, it, as Britt says, it's not for them. I think has me that, that draws me in and keeps me coming back, and I just reread them for like maybe the third or fourth, probably the fourth time this past fall, is just the, the sense that this world is so fleshed out that it feels real in a way that a lot of speculative fiction fantasy and sci-fi books just don't necessarily feel for me like that like that there is the all these stories that are happening at the edges of what you're being told and you might catch glimpses of them and there might be a name or a place dropped here and there and in a lot of other books you might read that and think like oh i wonder I wonder what happened or I wonder who that person was. But with Tolkien, it's very likely that that person does have a very fleshed out backstory that maybe you can find in some of the other stuff, maybe not, but it's but it's there. And I, I think that really mm-hmm. lends itself to making that world feel like a real alternative world that you, you can get lost in for a time. I think too, like it's it's interesting to reflect on Tolkien as a writer and as an academic actually, because his output was not, huge in terms of what got officially published and he was able to publish but also able to spend so much time creating these worlds because first of all most of his time was spent creating these worlds Mm -hmm. and telling these stories and writing stuff down and kind of just holding on to it in his office and he didn't have this push to just publish or perish in either area and so he he was given the time to do that and I think there's actually something really lovely about that in terms of world building whereas it could 
be that other authors like you know Stephen King has built an extended universe where we see certain characters in books we maybe don't expect to see them for example but he I think there's a lot more pressure now on any newer writers of fantasy to not necessarily have worlds this fleshed out because there just isn't time to make them yeah I mean I I think one of the nice things about fantasy nowadays is that it is just so much more diverse there's there's a lot more voices in play which is a wonderful thing and and there's so there's fantasy that can take different approaches to telling these stories and so yeah i think i i I wouldn't say that there are not authors out there that are creating these hyper detailed worlds just to plug one of like so like my all one of my all-time favorite fantasy series is Stephen Erickson's uh Malazan Book of the Fallen. And I think that draws me in for similar reasons and how just mm-hmm. utterly detailed and real this this world feels. But then there's a lot of other stories that don't necessarily need that level of world building to tell the story that they want to tell. And it still can be a great experience and a different experience in, in its own way. Yeah. It's interesting too with with Tolkien, like I think it would we would be remiss if we didn't point out that he really did lay the foundation for future fantasy authors and I think future audiences of fantasy as well and uh, I guess I'll throw this question to you first Matt I mean what do you what do you think it is about these books that has had such a lasting impact on folks? I mean I think part of it that I think still resonates is this kind of good versus evil plot line that's become something of, of a trope so you don't see it very often nowadays because it's we're, we're all so familiar with it I think that like to do something with this you're more likely to find books that are playing with these tropes of subverting them in, in interesting ways but you know those 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 hadn't been necessarily set in stone at least in the the conventions of fantasy literature as, as we know of now back when Tolkien was writing so he has I think this this nice mix of at at the one hand, there is an ultimate good in his novels, and he definitely was writing informed by his Catholic faith. So he has this creator figure that is supposed to be this kind of source of of creation in a positive sense, and he's got this kind of series of of bad guys to put in opposition to that. But I I also think that there is more complexity to it than just that, that it's not simply like, ah, Aragorn or, or the, the, the good guys are all purely good. They have got no foibles. They've got no like downfalls. I mean, Boromir is a perfect example of someone who really is, he's, he, he's a good guy. He wants what's best for his people and the world in general, but still is, is, ends up being tempted and falls to that temptation tries to redeem himself somewhat at the end, has a fantastic death scene just riddled with arrows, doesn't yeah. actually succeed at what he's trying to do to, to prevent these two young hobbits that he feels are in his charge from being captured, but nevertheless is is struggling to achieve what little good he can, even if it seems hopeless. And I think that element of it, this this idea that like good is something that we can fight for and that is real and exists in the world, but it's not something that's easy to necessarily find or to achieve or to in ourselves or or in others. That there's always gonna be this kind of constant struggle against evil, very even but like really banal evil. It's not like we're all going out and fighting Sauron, but the <laughs> the little evils that we still have to like struggle against day by day and maybe not always succeed, but that doesn't end the struggle. Hmm. So I had a I had a conversation a couple of years ago now with 
a writer friend of mine whose whose opinion on things like books and movies I don't always agree with, but I always think he has something interesting to say. So we were talking about Lord of the Rings um, in comparison to Game of Thrones, because right now that's been one of the big comparisons. It feels like fantasy stories are either more Lord of the Rings or more Game of Thrones if mm. they're if they're doing this kind of like big world building kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And one of the things he talked about with Lord of the Rings that I thought was interesting is like that that idea that there can be a like one true complete evil in the world somehow and like the ring as this uh he talked about it in terms of the Foucauldian will to power which is mm-hmm. this idea from Michel Foucault that like human nature is kind of inherently bent towards trying to find power and that as power begins to collect it begins to do what it can to ensure its own survival often through collecting more and more power so it it's like it's almost like if we did an object-oriented ontology reading of the ring it's this idea that like this used to just be a ring but over time and because of the various actions that have been taken surrounding it it has started to kind of like develop this gravitational pull of its Mm. own and I think yeah like there there it is more complicated I think like Matt's saying than just good or evil like the way that that Frodo himself starts to succumb to the influence of the ring even though he's been our like goodest boy the whole time (laughs) yeah is it's more interesting than I think some people who critique the trilogy give it credit for. The ring is really interesting. We 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 put these notes together, but another thing that we did to prepare for today was <laughs> did a full rewatch of all the movies this weekend. <laughs> nice. And we did talk a little bit about how the ring has kind of differential effects on different people. So like it's not even just that. Uh, that quote that you know absolute power corrupts absolutely uh, it, it kind of does but not in a direct or linear fashion so like we see that Boromir is immediately taken by it he doesn't even have to touch the ring by accident to get overwhelmed by his his need for the power that that ring represents and that seems pretty clear right like Boromir was raised on the borderlands by a father who loved him best but only it seemed really on the expectation that he did everything daddy wanted and so he did uh, because we see his foil Faramir having a much less uh, good relationship with their horrible father Denethor and but then we look at like Frodo, right? And Frodo's kind of like, whatever, it's a ring. It's my uncle's old ring. Okay. Like eventually it does wear him down. The, the idea that he's continuing to wear it, that he's continuing to see his world break down around him. He's continuing to lose friends. He assumes many of them are dead, including his like most powerful friend with the highest, the highest dice rolls, I guess. The most the highest level. <laughs> Uh, for you some know. reason, I immediately thought midichlorian count. He's got the no. midichlorian count. <laughs> That'd be an interesting crossover. No, like he he does eventually start to succumb, but again, it's like it ha- he doesn't. He kind of wants a quiet life, and then I think you know Sam 
does bear the ring briefly and even in his case he's like yeah whatever you know like the <laughs> so if i remember right when when sam has the ring the he has like a bit of like the ring tries to tempt him but it's it's hard to get a a, a hold on someone's like sam for the ring the ring doesn't know what to offer sam to tempt him if i remember right essentially sam sees visions of like how truly awesome like his garden could be and like he could be the mayor of the shire <laughs> and like as mayor he could like institute all these like you know civic design programs to make gardens everywhere it's like what do you do with that as like this like symbol of ultimate evil and i don't think we ever really hear about similar kind of visions from frodo's perspective but i think it'd be curious to know like what it was you know trying to tempt him with yeah. But I think it is kind of also important to remember at the end of the day, like Frodo's our protagonist and he fails. He doesn't succeed. Yeah. He chokes at the very end and, and can't give it up. And, and I that's think why we have to leave Gollum yeah. alive so he can bite <laughs> off Frodo's finger. <laughs> oh, geez, I forgot about that. Actually, talking about this is again thinking about the like comparison to game of thrones and a lot of the appeal of game of thrones i think to certain kinds of like fantasy fans is that there it feels like there is more social commentary in game of thrones like mm. with all the political intrigue and the east versus west kind of stuff and the climate change i guess but yeah. talking through this now I'm, I'm maybe realizing that there is more social commentary in lord of the rings than i realized with this idea that like it's easy to resist temptation or it's easier to resist temptation when your life has been good. Yeah. You know, Sam has had a relatively comfortable life. It hasn't been elaborate or, you know, exotic or anything like that, but it's been comfortable. And I think maybe the same thing for Frodo. It's only after he's been kind of subjected to months and months of hardships that he begins to wear down, I think is what Britt said. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 yeah, that's a good way of looking at it because, you know, we, we see the Shire too as this really cozy place. I mean, there's definitely some things going on there with like Tolkien's obsession with the pastoral. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because you, you see this very much like perfect, uh, I guess the best way to explain it is like these perfect sort of English countryside farmers they, they live their best life because what they're concerned with is growing great crops and being at one with nature but in a very specifically British <laughs> way of like controlling nature and you know good food and drink and little festivals and stuff and like that that's the best uh, as opposed to the huge black smoke and felling of trees and burning of trees of the industrial the, the industrialization brought on by Saruman right like you see yeah. these very kind of interestingly legitimately like black and white pastoral industrial binaries in these texts in some interesting kinds of ways but I also think like yeah as you were pointing out Stephanie despite these sort of big strokes that you do see some more I think in depth thinking about like what does it take to have a life that where you are contented and safety and love seem to be so central to that vision and when people don't have that they succumb to the rings temptations much more quickly I mean maybe a more Marxist reading would be that like 
Uh, I'm going to throw the Marxist wrench in there um, that what it takes to be contented is having control over the means of production, because like, mm -hmm. as idyllic and pastoral as the Shire is people do have a much more direct control over, mm. you know, how they get their food, how they get their goods, that kind of thing. While there certainly is class dynamics at play in the Shire, Tolkien seems to kind of downplay those. Like mm -hmm. you look at like Frodo and Sam, Frodo is definitely like the quintessential upper crust English gentleman. He and Bilbo have quite a bit of money, partly because Bilbo went out and raided a dragon's horde. Um, <laughs> whereas Sam is kind of like this lower class individual, but we don't get the sense that like, that anyone is really impoverished in the Shire, that even like, you might have somewhat less than others, but everyone, like Sam still has his plots of, of gardening and like everyone still seems like they're taking care of one another, that everyone has enough to eat and enough to drink and, and enough tobacco to stuff in your pipe, you know? Yeah. It is interesting though, because I, I do wonder to what extent the movie downplays some of that more than the book, because I think in the book, it's a little bit clearer that like Sam is the son of and is continuing to be the Baggins family gardener right like <laughs> and 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 Frodo is his master right and they and they use that language back and forth we notice it much more from Gollum mm -hmm. than we do from Sam but there is there definitely is a class difference I think it stands out more in the books too because they haven't made Mary and Pippin into such kind of comedic relief characters. Like in the books, they're more in the know and less idiotic than they are in the, in the movies. Mm -hmm. And so you see the kind of closeness between the three of them is stronger than his closeness with Sam until the end after they've been through everything together. And the only person who was there to support Frodo was Sam. Yeah, and, uh, the great equalizer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I do, but I do think there's something also kind of, I don't want to say wonderful because it's a, it's a terrible story, but like, I, I feel like there's often like a push of like, ah, yes, the simplistic morality of Lord of the Rings, but at the end of the day, they defeat evil and, and everyone lives a happy, you know, happily ever after, but except Frodo doesn't. He does definitely have PTSD and ultimately he can't go back to the way it was like mm -hmm. the these the, the trauma he's undergone isn't just something he brushes off at the end of the day like I would defeat the dark lord job done like it's something that just stays with him for the rest of his life and that he never quite gets over and I know that Tolkien will, would state he's not a fan of allegory he didn't write the books as an allegory of either World War One or World War Two, but he was mm -hmm on the front lines of world war one for a couple months before basically coming down with those like trench fever or trench sickness and getting shipped back home but he got to experience the awfulness of that war that most of his friends by like 1918 had died like you know like these he's writing from a perspective that's informed by some of these horrors and traumas that that were able to inflict on one another yeah it's interesting you know Tolkien always talked about like it's not an allegory I don't write out if you want allegory go to C.S. Lewis that bastard right. <laughs> uh, but like he clearly it is informed right and I think it would be difficult for it to not be I think for a little additional context it would be helpful just to let listeners know when some of the books were published so The Hobbit was published by George Allen and Unwin 
publishers in 1937. The Fellowship of the Ring was published in 1954, which was swiftly followed by The Two Towers later in 1954 and The Return of the King about a year later in 1955. I think uh, we know that Tolkien was like, here's the Lord of the Rings, this one huge tome. And his publishers were like, no, bro. And they cut it into three separate books. But yeah, so you can see like there's there's been a long time between when he would have served in World War One, And like by this point, he's got kids and, and a career and firmly established in Oxford. And then The Silmarillion was published posthumously in 1977. Tolkien died in 1973. So yeah, it's it's interesting to just to think about like he published his first book in 1937. Basically, his second book was published over a year, like, tw- you know, 15, 20 years later. And then 20 years after that, after his death, his his other work is finally published, which is a very different view of publication. And it, it just as an aside, because it just makes me laugh at some of like, uh, I think, what we were talking earlier about kind of like the weirdness that is the Silmarillion and how difficult it is to read and mm-hmm. we when we were preparing for this episode we were reading about some of the publication history he kept trying repeatedly to get this thing published and <laughs> publishers I think like most publishers were would look at this and just go no this is unpublishable this is just this weird mythological storytelling but he 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 was dogged he kept they they like they liked the hobbit this delightful children's book and he was like here how about this thing and uh, as my next book they're like no dude we want more hobbit please give us more of this <laughs> yeah it's interesting too though like given how difficult of a time he had getting some of this stuff published like the silmarillion and the appendices of the lord of the ring are such key touchstones for super fans in creating their own like i can go online now and <laughs> and ask how old is galadriel supposed to be in this new TV show on Amazon Prime and people will be like, well, let me tell you. And they do all this math and I'm like, holy shit, like this. <laughs> this is obviously like clearly people did want this. It's just interesting to look back and and know that from the perspective of publishers at the time, they were like, no, this is boring. Like, stop it. <laughs> and to be fair, it's only a thing that really you could publish once there's already the fan base in place for it. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are there are some other fantasy series out there now that have similar like companions, encyclopedias. I think Wheel of Time has one. Uh, Discworld by Terry Pratchett is another one. But it's not like you lead with that. You don't you don't put out that as your first or second or even third book. No, that comes much much later, dude. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So let's move into the the movies. So for me, the Rankin and Bass animated version of The Hobbit was not a thing that I saw until this Saturday. <laughs> But this is something for you, Matt. So can you can you talk us through this delightful trip to the 1970s that is this I mean, film? <laughs> I I think you've hit the nail on the head. It's it's just you, you watch it. This I think this I believe this would have come out right about like when when there really was kind of a uh, Tolkien had been embraced by like the American like counterculture. Like you had people, you had like hippies that were reading these books about hobbits and 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 smoking their own version of weed, which I think would have kind of befuddled Tolkien. But then this animated film comes out in the 70s and it's it's just a delightful thing again of its time. It came out in 1977. So yeah. the same year as the Silmarillion <laughs> was finally published, interestingly um, enough. 
you know, they there's they put they try to put music with varying degrees of effectiveness to some of the poems that Tolkien includes in The Hobbit. Um, and then they've got this nice title track that's just this guy crooning on his on his 70s folk ballad, The Greatest Adventure, which I'm 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 fairly confident was was satirized by South Park many, many years later. I'll leave that for the listeners to go find the Lenny Winks episode <laughs> and compare that to the Rankin and Bass Hobbit. But it's, it was it was something that we were introduced to as kids. Not necessarily, like I think it came about after after I had read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings and we found this and it was like, oh, this is a fantastic animated retelling. They hit all the major points. It's very rushed because they don't want to overstay their welcome. But they, you know, you get to see the the high points of the Hobbit's journey, and they tell the story, and and it's I don't know, I just I I really find it delightful. I recommend anyone with an interest in the Hobbit to to seek it out and, and give it a shot. I love too, and in, in this one, uh, it's it's a great watch. I highly recommend it if you are in a state where it is legal to take a gummy and watch it. This is a this is an approach I recommend. But I love in this one how they don't. They're, they're they're just like look at how rude Gandalf is because <laughs> Gandalf just shows up with all these dwarves and he's like you're gonna be my my uh, burglar right and Bilbo's like what the I saw you when I was a child you did the fireworks what's going on so that's totally weird it's it's I don't think there were any songs by John Denver in it but that was a missed opportunity for sure <laughs> yeah parallel universe I'm sure it would have been it would have been a beautiful thing to behold. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who do not wish to watch the three Hobbit movies that became a thing, much to many fans' chagrin between 2012 and 2014, and you wish to see the Hobbit as it was intended, there is <laughs> still in the world, you can stream it today, the Rankin and Bass 1977 animated Hobbit and I I think that's where my heart will stay because it is most faithful to the tone and the intention, I believe, of The Hobbit. But all right, so let's talk about the other movies, the 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 Peter Jackson's trilogy. <laughs> let's talk about those. So I, I don't know. How do you feel about the, the I, I want to call it the original trilogy, because now there's the second one that I think we all know how I feel about. How, how do you, Matt, feel about Peter Jackson's original trilogy of these movies that were made between or released between 2001 and 2003? I mean, I, I'm a huge fan of them. I mean, so like <laughs> my favorite genre of, of fantasy is like secondary world. So so when you're not set on Earth. And I guess you could quibble because technically Tolkien did write this as like a far past version of Earth, but let's be honest, it's it's its own thing. And there's still so very few well-done examples of that in TV and in movies. It's been slightly more common recently. You've got things like Game of Thrones, you've got things like The Witcher, but prior to that, like most all the fantasies tended to be like in some way connected to Earth. So I, I love that there is this trilogy of movies that portrays this this story portrays it in a very serious manner they're trying to i just i just there's there's i think they just nailed it so well in many respects there, there are certainly elements that like i don't care for as much little changes that were made maybe narratively but overall i think they did a great job of nailing the feel of the books the world looks and feels like it's been lived in 
they it, the costumes are such that they don't feel like costumes they feel like real outfits that these people would be wearing at these times you know it was, it was right at like the start of like really heavy use of cgi but it manages to like it, it we while watching it you know yes uh, over this past weekend it definitely shows its age in some aspects but i think overall was very tastefully done in terms of how they utilize the cgi mm-hmm. and i just yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I never really grow tired of, of returning to these movies. I, we, you get to the end of Return of the King and there's all these tearful goodbyes and it it still brings a tear to my eye. <laughs> you know, like Frodo's getting on the boat and, and, and they're all hugging for one last time. And it's just, it's, they're wonderful. <laughs> yeah, I, I admit to every time we have watched Return of the King when we get to that scene where... Bilbo and Frodo are leaving on the last boat from Middle Earth to the Undying Lands. I always, I always tear up quite a bit. It's just such a lovely moment between our hobbits and between them and and Gandalf. So, yeah. And, and the the casting is just, I don't know. I, I I thought they did a fantastic job. It's like I feel like Ian McKellen was made for this role of Gandalf. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's like sometimes you like you you watch a film or, or an adaptation of, of, a, of a book and like it doesn't quite match your internal representation but I feel like for me there isn't really dissonance between the Lord of the Rings movies and the films in that regard or books in the films mm-hmm. yeah I remember I remember watching the first movie and feeling the like sense of of how big the world was which felt very much like the book this idea that uh, I like Britt was mentioning earlier, you have these like throwaway comments about people or places. And it's almost like you get this feeling that you're reading this book that isn't actually meant for you as a reader. It's a story mm-hmm. that's meant to be told to somebody living in the world and they get these little throwaway comments and you don't. Mm-hmm. So this idea that it's like this really complete world by itself and it's very big and expansive. And I remember that feeling from watching the first movie and feeling how big the world was. I'm going to admit, I think I've only seen Return of the King once. And much like with that last book, I have a hard time. Uh, I I have a hard time in general now sitting through like three hour movies, much less three of them. Mm -hmm. So it's the kind of thing where it's like, if it's on and I'm kind of popping in and out, I'm always happy to like, look at it. I think they're very fun things to look at. And like, I agree. The casting is really great. The, I mean, New Zealand, my God. (laughs) Um, but I, I have a hard time, I think still kind of like staying with the story the whole way through. Yeah, I think nice. that's yeah. that's very fair. I feel like I have an easier time sitting through the Fellowship of the Ring, mm-hmm. even though it's not like it's any shorter. <laughs> or, well, I guess it is a little shorter than the other two, maybe in length. But yeah, there's. I think part of it is also like the Two Towers and the Return of the King have a lot of threads. And because of that, there is some degree of a feeling of fragmentation, really, which I think makes it harder to sit in. And I think, uh, I feel like it's it's an issue with both Two Towers and uh, Return of the King, yeah. where you just have a lot of different little things that are important to the story that are happening, but they take away your focus and like 
small 30 to 45 minute <laughs> sort of mini stories basically. And, and it's, I can see why it would be difficult. And again, I also agree. I'm, I'm kind of like, if you're going to, if you're going to continue to make movies that are three hours long or more, you need to give us the intermission again, please, yeah. please give us the intermission. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's interesting. I think, uh, I really love the movies. I think The Fellowship of the Ring is this interesting movie where when I get to the end of it, I want to start watching it again. And the only other movie I've ever felt that way about is Titanic, which is weird because (laughs) it's an extremely traumatic movie. And I don't know why I get to the end and I'm like, all right, let's go again. Let's go on the, the sinking log ride again. But the other two are, are a little harder. I liked Return of the King, but I think I, I end up liking it most because it does tie all the threads together at the end. And I'm like, oh, nice. And they they cut out the bit in the book where they come back to the Shire and it's kind of a shithole because, you know, uh, things have been going wrong. I, I kind of like that they cut that out because it's like, uh, I don't know that we need more trauma. We've been sitting through quite a bit of, of trauma and on the edge of our seats for several hours. So thank you for removing that. The Two Towers, yeah. I think, is the most boring. And also, I have never forgiven them for doing Faramir dirty and making him be like Boromir and capture Frodo and try to use the ring. I'm just like, this is not what Faramir did. Faramir was like, okay, I'm not like my brother. I'm going to let you go. I understand the big picture. And in the movie, they didn't do that. And I was like, why would you do that to Faramir? His dad's already mean enough to him. I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I The the two, so I, I, I will be the voice of, of dissension that I, I do love the return of the king and fellowship roughly equally i would say but i will agree that the two towers is a rougher one in part because it just suffers from that middle movie syndrome or middle book of the trilogy syndrome where you you can't tie everything up because that happens in book three so then you've got these plot threads that are kind of hanging in the air so you kind of try and create some kind of narrative end to it except it's not a real end like helms deep they they play it up in the movies to an extent that it really wasn't quite as big of a fight in the books, or at least it's not presented as such, but yeah. you need some kind of like climax to end this movie on, even though it's not actually a climax because this isn't the climax of the story that's being told across these three movies. It's it's a difficult tightrope to walk. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that this is going to be, I, I, I've talked about this a few episodes where it's like, this was a really cool and neat and innovative thing when it happened and now like 20 years later I'm kind of tired of it but I just Mm -hmm. have less patience for like battle sequences than I used to and it feels like most of the two towers is fighting and I you know at the time like having those big fight sequences was like a thing and I think even now like the fact now that we talk about our favorite Game of Thrones like battle episodes or like fight episodes and picking and choosing which fight sequences we like or didn't like maybe says something about the influence of something like the Peter Jackson movies when they came out because having those huge battle sequences especially with the start of CGI where you could you know you weren't relying on extras to like fill this space you know, it was definitely a big deal when it happened, but now, yeah, it's like, I need this to be like 45 minutes right. shorter. This is, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's interesting for me because, you know, when we, when I was going to see these movies, 
at least one of the times I would go to see them. And I, I know we went to go see the Fellowship of the Ring more than once. I would say I probably saw it twice with my family and once or twice with friends. But each time I went with my family, my dad, who is not just a Lord of the Rings super fan, but also a big fan of history and particularly like military history and historic battles. So for him, these scenes were really intriguing. And he had had in his mind a very clear idea of what the battles were meant to look like. Uh, he had also for a long time from his like early teen years to early adult years played war games, like, and not like on a computer, like a huge ass table with maps spread out a cardboard maps with little pieces moved everywhere. Like, and they're, and they're not like nice, cool pieces. They're like little cardboard tokens all over the different map, doing different things on the map. <laughs> and I, 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 I don't know that he has a Lord of the Rings one, but uh, you know, enough similar to it. So he had a very clear sort of picture in his mind of how he felt the battles went. And so he really appreciated seeing the ways in which those battles were realized on screen, which I, I mean, I think I, I kind of having that appreciation nearby, I think heightened my appreciation for some of what was happening on the field and trying to get a sense of the different stakes that were that were ongoing right because you see there's a number of battles in two towers and in return of the king that look that look pretty unwinnable like obviously the the ghost army comes in and like as a nice deus ex machina and the, and the eagles come in as a nice deus ex machina <laughs> but like they're still doing okay before that just despite having a completely mismatched set of armies so that's really interesting and i so i remember talking to my dad a lot about that like is this something like are these numbers something that in terms of like the different size armies like is this something that would have happened in the past which is a ridiculous question because obviously <laughs> this is not our past this is a made-up world yeah. but it, it turns out that yeah like some of the stuff you see done and talked about is not unrelated to other sort of ancient battles, which is kind of interesting from that perspective. So I guess I appreciate the amount of time they took into very closely and carefully choreographing these battles to really give a full visual sense of the size. And I think watching Return of the King again, it, it is really striking. Like it, it was just them succeeding on a prayer basically because they're sending in two hobbits who may or may not survive this trip and almost don't and then very underpowered underbodied armies and they manage to do it again with some deus ex machina <laughs> i think the other great thing about the movies this is in the books too but i i think my other complaint about tolkien is that he's really good at world building but not necessarily as good at relational elements of writing. So like you've got this great expansive world, you, you do get a decent sense of characterization, but in terms of like anyone interacting with anyone else is kind of, eh, at least for my, that's how I feel about it. Whereas the movies really were able to show the depth of like intimacy that was possible for masculine friendships. And I feel like that that was something I was really taking away again as we were rewatching is just how 
close and caring and nurturing, like even though you have all of these different men who are doing warfare and fighting and leading things and whatever, they're all kind of able to have other more feminized traits such as caring and nurturing. And, you know, I'm sure that Aragorn, after many years uh, living on the trail, makes a great stew uh, maybe not as good as Sam's brace of conies, uh, <laughs> but you know, you get to see real depth of, of true masculine friendship. And I think that's really sort of lovely. I also think that this depth of friendship is probably why so many Americans, um, because we have a horrible society that we live in, read the relationship between Sam and Frodo as super gay I will say I do read Frodo as being a closeted gay guy, <laughs> but I think it's kind of, it's, in, it was interesting to see that and to, to have it so supported and, and praised in these movies in a way that I don't know that we get from other kinds of media that has huge battles in them. So I found that really interesting. Yeah. It, one of the, uh, one of the critiques that I have of Tolkien is uh, well, and this is not going to be a surprise. It's a it's a sausage fest, man. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so yeah. It, it is kind of interesting that we do have all of these spaces for men to develop these like intimate friendships, but it also feels like part of the reason they can do that is because there aren't any women around that we feel like we have to have romantic relationships with. And yeah. honestly, the one romantic relationship that we really get with Aragorn and uh, what's her name, Eowyn. Arwen. Um, Ar- well, so, there's so it's, it's there's, Aragorn there's... and Arwen. And <laughs> then you. there's Eowyn, who is head over heels obsessed with Aragorn. Okay. And she keeps flirting with him, but she ends up with Faramir because they hook up in the halls of healing after the battle. I, uh, I have a friend from high school who n- named his kid Eowyn, I think, which mm-hmm. if you're going to pick between two, why go with her? Anyway, that's a whole other thing. But I like the the romantic relationships really take a backseat. And I think that's fine. Like that's not the point here at all. But mm. if the romantic relationships are the only place where you really have women at all, then it is kind of a problem. And that's maybe part of the reason, again, why I struggled so much with these books is like there weren't many places to see myself as a young woman in in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that is absolutely true. Like the books, I I think have, while they've had a huge impact, obviously, like Tolkien is terrible at writing women and even more terrible at writing romance. He just is, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not gonna apologize for that. Don't come at me, like that's just true, right? I think they did more with the women characters in the movies than in the books. So like, you know, yeah. Galadriel is a badass, but we don't see much of her. Arwen, they they increase her presence in the movie. Like the scene where you have her riding at, at top speed on her horse to get Frodo to Rivendell so he can get good elven ma- magic to help cure the stab wound from the the witch king's blade and we see that scene and in the books that's just like some other random male elf like that's not arwen who does that so she does get an increased presence but what's weird is like 
she has this increased presence in the fellowship and then she's kind of not really there during the two towers and then in return of the king she's just kind of like lazing around on divans like dreaming of being with aragorn and having kids together and then her dad like goes all the way to the to the front line to be like my daughter is dying eventually <laughs> very very dramatic. 400 years from now yeah and it's 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 weird because really the only times we see they they kind of establish her as this cool character and then they really bring her down eowyn is kind of was a badass in the books and they maintain and they we see a little bit more of her i feel like she's the only like I don't know, relatable, interesting character. But yeah, most of the women are in the background. We don't know much about them. They get diminished in many kinds of ways. And um, these movies do not pass the Bechdel test. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. A- Eowyn is a great character, but Eowyn is, is, you pointed out, is the exception that proves the rule. Like these, these are not movies for gender representation. <laughs> no. Unless you see Frodo as um, non-binary, which True. I do. <laughs> okay, um, I want to. I I have a I have a burning question. Like this is the question that I brought to the podcast today, which mm-hmm. means that it's not in the notes at all. But we have a biologist here, and we're talking about romance. Matt, how do ants reproduce? Ants. Ants. Oh, ants. Not ants. Ants. Oh, tree, yes. Tree, trees. Yes. People. <laughs> Yes. Um, I know how ants is... reproduce. Yeah, you idiot. Sorry, I just, I've, I've, done, I've done some work on ants, you know. Don't ants-plain ants. her. <laughs> um, that is a great question to which I don't think we actually have a good answer because we don't actually have a good answer to what ant wives are because we don't ever meet an ant wife. They weren't present. They might get mentioned in the Silmarillion like briefly. All we get is basically from Treebeard, the uh, our our main point of contact in the in the books and movies with with the ant folk. But they've at the, by this point in the in the writing or in the world, the the ant wives have gone on a trip somewhere. It seems like ant wives and ants don't like to hang out with one another except for the purposes of reproduction, and we don't know where they are. Thus, we don't really know what an ent ent wife relationship really looks like. I like to think that maybe they're able, maybe they're able to like change sexes. Maybe they're like ginkgo trees, except that maybe that that would bring up the question of of why if 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 Fangorn is just full of all these male ants, why don't some of them become female ants for you know? But but yeah, I'm I'm sorry, I can't really give a, a better no no explanation. no. This was great. <laughs> I didn't even remember anything about ant wives at all. And now I'm thinking about all of these possibilities of like, well, why didn't they turn into ant wives? And maybe it's because like the male ants wanted to keep hanging out with their bros. And if they turned into ant wives, they're not going to want to be around each other anymore. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, in my um, brain, I always, cause you know, tree beards, like, man, we don't know where the ant wives went. Like, have you seen any? And the uh, Mary and Pippin are like, why would we have seen an ant wife? Um, <laughs> what, what does one look like? He's like, yeah. I, I have no idea. I, I hope you do. But in my in my head canon they went on a, a nice girls trip and then we're like you know what this is let's not go bad that's fine. that's the good reading the bad the the possible bad reading is they were all taking a trip to Beleriand near the end of the second age and then they all are under the ocean now uh yeah. i hope that's not the case 
You know, it just occurred to me that you left out some very key information about your history with Lord of the Rings in the earlier segment. You failed to talk about your fan fiction, and you also failed to talk about the speech you gave at, at Albion College for oh, a scholarship and, and the Lord of the Rings songs you played. I think you should tell us a little bit about that, Matt. Well, um, <laughs> so I applied to Albion College as, as a possible place to, to go do my undergrad. It was, it was not to be. Um, ended up at you know Michigan State. But yeah, so I applied to Albion College for undergraduate and they had some kind of scholarship program. I can't remember what the exact goal of like what they want us to do, but it was uh, my my what I remember was essentially we could present on like any kind of like topic or hobby or whatever that whatever we wanted to to present in an interesting fashion. It could be art related or or really anything you wanted to talk about. You had like a half hour to the to to do this. And I was just really big into Lord of the Rings right now. I don't think, basically, I didn't have any real, like, better idea of what to present on. So I figured I will present on how Lord of the Rings can help us better understand our own world, which, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah. So as as part of this, you know, I I, I wrote a a short story of my own. Unfor I, I do believe my, my mom still has a copy of this hidden away. In fact, I know that she does because when Britt and I first started dating, this was what I Britt was visiting my family for the first time. And my mom had this recording of this presentation I gave at Albion College. Now I would like to just note that I did not receive the scholarship. It, it, it was a failed presentation. It was not good enough for them to be like, yes, we want we definitely want you to come to Albion College. They're like, no, no, no we're all right, we're good, you please go somewhere else. But this, this does not stop my mom from then for the next half hour playing this presentation where I read my short story. And I wish that, I, I, I wish I could tell you more about it. I know that it was about the second age. It actually overlaps a bit with Amazon's Ring of Power TV series. Um, it was all about Sauron and what he was in his um, Anatar form, his the Lord of Gifts, when he was fair, fair to behold and he was going around making rings for everyone and giving them rings. So I, I wrote some some fiction about what that might have been like. Um, I know I played some some of the soundtrack on piano to show my <laughs> virtuoso talents there. And so then I got to relive all that many years later <laughs> with, with this person that I desperately wanted to impress and, and to hopefully form a lasting relationship with. And then my mom is doing everything, everything that she can to sunder this relationship. <laughs> I have to say to, to listen to this 30 minute presentation. It, it was so cute, but it was also like kind of difficult because I had just come down from, it was like morning, it was like breakfast time. And I was like trying to like have coffee and breakfast and your mom keeps talking about this presentation and I feel pressured <laughs> to make comments on it. And I'm like, I'm like not all there because I haven't had my coffee yet. So I'm just kind of like, what is happening? I will say it was adorable. I don't remember the themes, but I do remember how passionately you spoke about the Lord of the Rings and their impact on you. And you played the piano several times. I think we did end up looking at some of your writing that you did in a creative writing class after that. But 
I just think this is really funny how, how proud your mom is of this failed presentation. <laughs> but I think it is also like two things I'll say. One, I think it is really like so much a part of what we've been talking about today in terms of the impact that these books have had. I mean, they led a man to continue to convince other men to give him untold amounts of money to make these movies in New Zealand and film them all in a row right they led you to talk about them for your Albion scholarship application I mean I think they definitely play a key role the other thing that I'm <laughs> I have to say I'm a little surprised that a smaller liberal arts college didn't immediately give you this funding and accept you. <laughs> I mean, you, you should have gotten a chair for that. So, like, Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I'm just saying I, I'm surprised that someone from the, the English department at the small liberal arts college wasn't like, well, you're getting an English degree, young man, whether you want to or not. <laughs> so I think that's pretty funny. I will say that your Lord of the Rings fan fiction sounds way more interesting than my Lord of the Rings fan fiction. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, I think a lot of people don't necessarily delve into the second age, mainly because most people can't stand to read the Silmarillion. And also there's not a huge amount of, of information in it either. So there's a lot to play with, but you, I don't know, you have to feel comfortable with that, I guess. That, that's why it was such a playground because most most of the Silmarillion is the first age and then we get the third age for Lord of the Rings. Second age is just like, little bit of the book so there's who knows what happened it was many thousands of years like there's all yeah. kinds of stories you could tell I just yeah. I love though that you you told you wrote stories about Sauron's you know fuck boy summer um all right <laughs> let's <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure mine was just as chaste as all of Tolkien's writings were <laughs> yeah yeah so yeah I guess the other thing that we have on here is the, the ways in which Tolkien has influenced not just like fantasy stories. We've talked about how it's established a set of tropes that have definitely been carried forward and also broken by more recent fantasy. But it's had some impact on other places as well. We could definitely talk about the impact on D&D, actually, I think would be kind of a fun thing to talk about. So uh, we know that Dungeons and Dragons, the game, it's a role-playing game, was designed in uh, 1974 by Gary, I never know how to pronounce this name, it's either Gary Gygax or Gygax, um, or none of I'm those, sure either. <laughs> and Dave Arneson, and we, we do know that it was partly developed as kind of an homage to the Lord of the Rings, we know that originally the race of halflings was was referred to as hobbits, but then they didn't want to get sued, so they changed it, and I feel like as much as people, well, people who were coming of age in the early 2000s are aware of the movies, I don't know to what extent they have had a, a staying power. Like, I feel like I'd have to ask my sister, like, does your generation know about Lord of the Rings really, or do they not care? Would be an interesting question. But I feel like Dungeons and Dragons has definitely had a really interesting staying power in terms it's, of like expanding the universe. It's had a surge of popularity recently. Like, and I partly, I think that's linked to, to the pandemic and, and people looking for ways they can engage. Certainly it, um, I've been myself engaged in kind of like a, going on a year and a half campaign with with some friends from completely we're, we're separated in what 
three states at this point across the mm-hmm. entire country, and yet we can play D and D on a semi regular basis, and it's it's kind of lovely. But yeah, like so, D and D definitely owes a lot of its DNA. I wouldn't say it's entirely because I, th- from my understanding, is Gygax himself, or or we'll we'll go with Gygax was not the biggest fan of D and D, but a lot of or uh, of Lord of the Rings, sorry, but a lot of his players were. So he felt otter bound to include things like the ranger class which is very much modeled after aragorn as the ranger and and as as Britt mentioned you've got hobbits that eventually they had to call them halflings you had balrogs that they had to call balors eventually but this this new way of being able to collaboratively tell the types of stories people were interested in both from lord of the rings as well as all the other fantasy fiction that had been being written at the time the conan stories and and uh the moorcock stories and so forth I just looked it up. It's apparently Gigax. So Gigax. Now we learned something today. We learned something. Yeah, I mean it. It totally okay. First of all, like I didn't know for certain that there was this lineage that happened here, but it totally makes sense. And even thinking about the way that the like D and D universe is structured in terms of like locations and ages, and there's this like this whole like history and chronology that honestly I find kind of daunting as someone who's like a fairly new DM. So I just, I I pick the bits I like and ignore the rest to be honest, which I think is probably what a lot of DMs do. I think that's the way. (laughs) (laughs) This is the way. But it has that same kind of like feeling of expansiveness of the universe or like, I don't want to say universe, like the world is so expansive and the way that you know, in, in a D&D game, if you're running it for somewhat chaotic players, like I often do, you have some kind of like throwaway character that's like one of those little like mentions of a person or place or something. And then all of a sudden they're obsessed with it. And that ends up being like the next part of the story because they won't, they're like so into it. And it, it does feel very much like the same kind of of world in a lot of ways in terms of Mm. its like age and space yeah I what I love about D&D so definitely when I first started playing it was much more like traditional D&D medieval ish setting and and character types Uh, I love that you can do lots of different kinds of things with the game rules you can have a space age one you can we had a, a kind of magic carnival one that we did at one point which was really fun there's a lot of different things you can do recently my my favorite DD character that i've made recently was basically just a version of steed bonnet from our flag means death <laughs> and i made a gentleman bugbear who is a bard who somehow for some reason became decided to become a pirate and there were some fun shenanigans from some of the cool powers you get as a bard one of which is like to convince people to do other stuff. So I, I convinced one of our opponents, which was a heavily armored skeleton to take its armor off. And so it was having to like unconnect all the armor and it was busy doing that. So we just walked past it and it was just like very weird. So I love that element of d and Yeah, and I think there is kind of, as you put it, like a weight to it as well, because again, you you have this really like expansive world that seems linked to something. It's, I feel like if I know about Lord of the Rings stuff, I know more about that as it's been translated into D&D, particularly from the time where I was really heavily playing, which was the 
when 3.5 was kind of the big one and I, I learned a lot about like what are the elves and what are the halflings and what are blah 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 yeah I think D&D is a really is a really interesting game and I I would say I bet that Tolkien would play D&D if it had been a possible game for him <laughs> to play he, he probably would have had fun with with further expanding out the the borders and stories within his world yeah yeah I, I do I do like that you bring that up Stephanie about like there's all these opportunities to to expand on the what ifs and and explore different like pockets of, of the world and different pockets of characters and these stories that that you know are there but you just are waiting to tell them they need the right audience and, and you find that audience and, and now you can yeah we have a lot of ways in which the lord of the rings has had long lasting staying power i don't know i think I wonder how much longer it will continue to have influence. I, I do think there is, we've definitely pointed out some weak points when it comes to writing uh, with gender representation. There's also some pretty extreme weak points when it comes to evil being represented by blackness and darkness and certainly by people with darker skin. All of the people with darker skin are all on Sauron's side for some reason. Yeah. The the supposed inherent goodness of the pastoral over the city, there's some interesting binaries in there that are problematic. There's some problematic racist representations of, of dwarves as being in some way kind of almost like Jewish stereotypes maybe it's it's interesting there's some there's some problems I guess in in this but I do think there also is something of a uh I I hate to use universal because I feel like that's not really ever true and yet it seems maybe like a relatively apt word for this there's enough uh, the world is so expansive and the I think some of the ideas of fighting for a, a better place to live are kind of timeless, I guess. And so it'll be interesting to see if if uh, 60 years from now, let's say, this still has the same kind of staying power. I don't know. Yeah, we're about what, 1937, did you say what The Hobbit was? So yeah. we've got like over 80 years since its publication. You know, it's 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 had a pretty even even if even if no one reads it in, in 50 years or whatever, I feel like it's had a pretty good run. And certainly while I I don't think Tolkien necessarily invented the fantasy genre by himself, like certainly others were contemporaries were writing alongside him or before him, and, and others have taken fantasy yeah, in yeah. different roads, but certainly he's had a lasting impact in shaping certain themes within the fantasy genre and then of course, people being able to play off of those themes in different ways and to dissect them and explore some of those problematic elements um, as well. And I will say in Tolkien's defense, he did struggle with that himself after he he has writings later on where he tries to figure out exactly what's going on with the orcs because he also, the more he reflected on it, the less comfortable he was with this idea of, of creating this, our orcs do orcs have souls? If so, they, they sh- in his view, should be redeemable, in which case it's genocide is, is not something you should be performing on them. Are they just soulless automatons? Well, then maybe, maybe then it's all right to slaughter them, but that doesn't really seem to mesh with the portrayal of the orcs in the books. They don't certainly don't act like mindless automatons. So a lot, from my understanding, is a lot of like later on after the publication of Lord of the Rings, before the publication of the Silmarillion, 
these are the kinds of questions where he was trying to like figure out for his internal legendarium of like exactly who are these and and what 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 is the morality of of an orc and so yeah i think i think he, he i think he was starting to recognize some of the uh, some of the problematic elements that were kind of baked into his mythos yeah yeah it's nice to know that in the new show on amazon the orcs are starting to unionize yeah <laughs> i do enjoy that they're playing with that element <laughs> interesting i think that it's kind of interesting that I, I didn't know that about his thinking about the orcs later, but it I've been playing the new Zelda game. We're going to date the recording of this episode, I guess, <laughs> but it just came out like last week and yeah. um, I've been playing it a lot. And of course, this world is like littered with monsters for you to kill without feeling bad. But then you have these moments where you like kind of sneak up on them and you see them like talking to each other and like they're like friends hanging out by a campfire and then everybody starts dancing together and you start to <laughs> yeah. wonder like are, are these just people like trying to live their lives and they're scared yeah. of me because I'm going around and killing them so they try to kill me first like yeah it's there, definitely, I have questions it's definitely I'm... that Mitchell and Webb look skit where it's these two Nazi soldiers on the front and they're I think they're officers and they look at each other <laughs> And one of them goes, are we the baddies? And I think, I think that's what you just talked about is definitely captured in that, in that yeah. scene. And talk about like the ways in which people have played off of these ideas. Like certainly he's not the only one to have done this. He's just the author I'm, I'm currently reading at the moment, but like Brandon Sanderson, I'm reading his Stormlight archive, my first time through the series. And like, there definitely is a race of people that are kind of like our orc stand-ins in that they are kind of associated with this with this ancient evil and are going to be pitted against men but you know and i don't know how all the stories are going to end but thankfully we are also seeing like oh maybe it's not as complicated as that in fact these individuals are also potentially just as much of a victim of this that they're unwilling participants in in this war that they mm -hmm. are that they all that they are all themselves of individuals that have their own viewpoints and their own desires and goals that don't necessarily align with this monolithic you are an evil horde of of monsters so like i i think yeah i'm I'm curious to see where where that goes but certainly it's an interesting uh, contrast yeah. to like the orcs and lord of the rings you yeah. you heard it here first amazon prime show us more about the the orc life because they showed <laughs> us so much more about dwarf dwarven life and like early halflings and I was like, I would watch an entire fucking show about the dwarves and an entire fucking show about these halflings. I, and so please uh, give yeah. us some more orcs. I want to see unionized. I want to see complicated. I want to see, I want to see that. I so. haven't seen any of the new show yet, but I, now I'm just imagining it being a like pseudo documentary where you just like <laughs> got these like elf anthropologists creeping around, like observing like early halfling life. And of course, like what's his name? David, David Attenborough, Attenborough. or whatever is like <laughs> narrating. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, see, I, and that made me think of just like you could do the mockumentary workplace style comedy, except with orcs and, and their trials <laughs> yeah. and tribulations. Yes, <laughs> yes. You could see that moment in, in the Lord of the Rings where the one guy goes, looks like meat's back on the menu, boys. But then it, <laughs> and then it pans over 
to another orc who's just staring at the camera like here grog goes again (laughs) with his little jokes he thinks he's so fucking funny (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah uh i would love that so is there anything that we didn't talk about when it comes to the lord of the rings matt that that you would like to make sure listeners take away with them from this episode i feel like we 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 did it pretty good justice I guess I guess we didn't really talk about the newest Hobbit movies, but I, I think we can give that a miss. <laughs> yeah, everyone should just not go see those movies and just watch. I keep forgetting the that they Bass. exist. Yeah, they're uh, they're a disappointment because the first one does match the tone, and you know what? I can't, I cannot bring myself to speak ill of what is his name? Martin Freeman. Martin Freeman. I cannot bring myself to speak ill of martin freeman but they should not have made it into three movies and they should not have tried to give it the degree of intensity that was there for the lord of the rings because it was unnecessary yeah yeah well we're gonna come on to our final question then which is what does it mean to be a fan and and we're gonna we're just gonna pump this to you matt and your experience of your lord of the rings fandom what does does it it mean for you to be a fan to to be a fan in general or a fan of lord of the rings oh uh both oh i mean i think i think being a fan is is just when you have these works that there's something about it sometimes you can define it sometimes you can't that something about that work just speaks to you and for all of its its flaws and we've touched on a few of them today about Lord of the Rings is just one of those series that, like I said at the beginning, I keep coming back to you. There's just something about the world that I, I don't mind getting lost in it for a time and, and being there with Frodo along these kind of horrible, terrible tri- trials that he has to go through and then and getting to see how it all ends in, in, in the end. While also recognizing that just because we enjoy something doesn't mean we have to enjoy everything about it unreservedly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I... I almost feel like with a text like Lord of the Rings, it like it it kind of almost feels like you can't be a fan of fantasy in general without at least to a certain extent being a fan of Tolkien mm. because he's been so influential in the genre. Yeah. Like I've been listening to a lot of uh, Beatles lately. Ben, my partner, and I have started this project where we listen to every single Beatles song and rank them, um, <laughs> which... It was probably going to take us about as long as watching the the three Peter Jackson movies mm-hmm. or more, to be honest. <laughs> but, you know, there's there's some real duds of Beatles songs, man. There's some bad ones out there, but they were so influential in like mm-hmm. what rock and roll music is that it's hard to like think about being a fan of the genre in general without at least having to tip your hat. And I... I think that like, even as we've been talking, like, I wouldn't really call myself a fan of Tolkien, the amount of like time and space that he like takes up in my head and that Lord of the Rings or, you know, Middle Earth in general takes up in my head. It's not a lot mm-hmm. until I start thinking about how much I have to reference Tolkien to talk about all of these elements of like fantasy stuff. And I, I think that maybe this is, I don't know, maybe we need to have something that's like different from fandom necessarily that is at least this like degree of acknowledgement 
or like understanding that it's hard to talk about this thing without talk talking about like these um the word I'm coming up with is grandmasters because there was the mm. like there was a mm. series of books that was like the grandmasters of SF or something and we talked yes. about like grandmasters in science fiction and if there is grandmasters in fantasy Tolkien is definitely one of them yeah. so yeah, yeah it's uh it it uh... I, I think Foucault talks about like digging back down into our history. He calls it, does he call it archaeology, something like that. He, oh, he uses um, like archaeology of knowledge. Yeah, it's, well, he does then. So it, you know, just like we, we can't really, we can enjoy modern fantasy without, without having to enjoy Tolkien or necessarily knowing about him, but we can't have it in the way that exists without him and similarly we would not have had the lord of the rings and the silmarillion and the hobbit without our ancient tales right from old norse from old english we wouldn't have especially the lord of the rings and the silmarillion without things like beowulf without stories about the you know the the viking gods like we we would just would not have had this and so it's almost like his own fandom of of narrative is where and and what he then through his 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 passion and his expertise was able to write down and then that has continued to influence people who do not study old norse and old english i think too what strikes me about this and it's it's we've talked a lot about headspace in previous discussions about fandom and what it means to engage and i feel like Something else that's starting to take shape for me here is the way in which fandom means taking on and utilizing a different narrative as a way to work through yourself. And I feel like the way Matt was talking about the story that just grabs you and that, you know, he mentioned being able to, like, I love sinking into this or escaping into this or or losing myself to this world for a little while. I feel like that's a that's an element of fandom that we haven't talked about in that way before but i think it's so true this way in which and i think fan fiction is one iteration of this where you are utilizing all of these features of a full narrative to kind of rethink yourself and your world and your life which you don't have to necessarily produce things to do that well thank you matt so much for talking to us about the lord of the rings we really do appreciate it Especially thank you for having me reproduction yeah i'll, we, I'll have to yeah. do some research see what i can turn up <laughs> well yeah so for those uh lord of the rings fans who are up on ent reproduction we did say that we weren't sure but um hopefully this will start a whole new conversation well thank you everyone for listening this is the final episode of season one we are going to take a brief break for a couple of months to get our ducks in a row our eggs in a basket our socks in the drawer i don't know i need to stop doing that uh, <laughs> find your ent wives yeah we're gonna yeah go we're gonna we're gonna find our ent wives and that's then what, what we'll do. be back in a few months with a, a brand new season so thank you thank you so much for listening to our first season we really appreciate you go out there and and obsess about some things obsess about some stuff learn about tolkien slowly read the silmarillion maybe chant out bits of it that's that seems in line with some of those original ancient tales 
especially and, uh, in public places especially mm-hmm. in public places yeah we do recommend that as well yeah stay cool thanks for listening and we will catch you next season bye y'all <laughs>